So let me ask you something. How do you get your news? Because I know you want to stay informed with what's going on here in the world. There's so much going on on a regular basis. And it's something that's been a problem for me personally. And I've been searching and searching and searching. And finally, I found a news source that I think all of my listeners are going to love. It's called The Donut, or The Dose of News Useful Today. The founder and CEO, Peter Nowak, is a good friend of mine. And when he turned me on to it, I was just blown away. Finally, a daily news source that delivers succinct and factual news about all the world's occurrences. And it's an easy access to finding things that you just want to get information about. And it also serves up a lot of positive news stories that you won't hear anywhere else. It's your daily reminder that there is good in the world, even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes. So get the donut, stay informed. It's 100% free. You can unsubscribe anytime. Visit thedonut.co or text donut to 66866 to sign up today. Like all the stuff that's actually happening right now in the world. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah there's a, there's a thing or two going on in the world. And well, I, I guess we like, better go ahead. I was going to say what I always like to say is that's a, a good thing for us over here. Cause uh, there's no news. News is never going to go out of business, right? There's always going to be stuff going on in the world. As How could it people. ever? Yeah. As long as the world exists, there'll be news every day, Peter. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, we got to cover the, the good with the bad. Well, I guess this is good and bad, but we're going to start off with the elections. And uh, since we last talked, I think it was a couple months ago, and this was before the actual elections on all levels. And so take me through a little bit what the donut has seen or reported on related to the election. Well, in terms of the general election, uh, we're seeing most states uh, as of, so we're recording this as of December 8th, um, and we had just read, uh, we're actually doing a piece on it today for tomorrow's uh, edition about the all of the legal challenges and election updates to date right now. And today, December 8th is what's called Safe Harbor Day or the Safe Harbor Deadline. And what that means is uh, Congress cannot overturn or the election results cannot be overturned once the states submit them to Congress by midnight tonight. So past midnight tonight, results that are certified cannot be overturned. So 49 states, um, this is the AP reporting this, AP is projecting that 49 of 50 states, uh, Wisconsin is the only one that uh, they say is, is iffy, um, appear to have met that deadline. So it seems like based on the certified results, uh, we have a, a final election result. Um, however, there is uh, we were kind of looking into a narrow chance that the um, election results could be overturned. It's unlikely, um, and the only way that would happen is if uh, this goes to the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court. Like they have to take up um, cases. There was a case actually filed by Texas today. I saw uh, that. 
yeah, uh, to invalidate results in Pennsylvania, Georgia, uh, Wisconsin, and my home state, Michigan. Um, and the the general argument, um, what the what they're asserting is the the states use the coronavirus pandemic as an excuse to unlawfully change their election rules. Um, but again, according to we've read multiple sources on this today, um, experts in election law. But again, like who are these experts? You know, we don't really know. We're just kind of mm-hmm. taking the word of uh, a conglomeration of sources. Um, they were dismissing the likelihood of of the justices taking the case. Um, so it appears that we do have uh, a finalized election result pending this slim outside chance. Right. And and they have to actually want to hear this, right? The Supreme Court, I mean, they could just dismiss it or how does that work? Uh, so you broke up there a little bit. Sorry. Uh, so the Supreme Court has to actually want to even hear it. They could just decide they don't even want to right. hear it. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So the Supreme Court decides what cases they take um, or not. So they can deny uh, cases or they can take up cases and and hear um, arguments. So you'd think that today, generally, I mean, looking at all the data, the information, the laws, um, all the lawsuits, everything that you've gathered, that this probably is technically either today or next Monday is the end of the election. Yeah, well, so the the safe harbor deadline is today. So I was walking through the timeline. December 14th um, is when the electors actually cast their votes. So the electors are chosen today, December 8th. They cast their votes on the 14th. Um, I'm a little iffy on the specific date, but it's early January when the new Congress convenes, where they, like the pomp and circumstance, like certify the electoral votes. And January then on 6th, January 20th, yeah. January 6th, yeah. Okay. And then January 20th is Inauguration Day. How funny is it that we'd never pay attention to any of these dates except for January 20th normally? Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, who knew about all this stuff? You know? And and that's why I love uh, love what I do, is I get proximity to learn new stuff every single day. Like uh, yesterday, man, like we had... Uh, we had stumbled upon why the days were called what they were. And it's one of those really basic things, like how the power grid actually works that I've never really thought about that I discovered yesterday and was just a a delight and joy to me. And I don't know if that's weird, but it's like, (laughs) it's just like some of the little things that I've, I've come to appreciate. I think it's just that we don't, we rarely question the things that we're doing on a regular basis. Like, you know, you flip on the switch in your house and there's light. I'm like, who knows how that works actually? You know what I mean? Like your iPhone, do you know who knows how your iPhone works? Actually, the inner workings of it. I don't know. I mean, you know. No, but you know, we all, we all enjoy and reap the benefits of it. And you know, I'm, I'm not complaining at all, but it's just no. like to me, I love learning that stuff. I know you're the same way. You're like a lifelong student. Yeah. So I, you know, that's what I really enjoy about you. And well, it's, thank you. Like, it's a delight for me to kind of exist and be able to to learn new stuff every day. Well, I think that's what's interesting about the election. I mean, not since high school government have people been inundated with uh, government-based information about, you know, elections. And I don't even remember this during government in high school, learning about half this stuff, you know, like, what? 
<laughs> yeah. Have you looked into the kind of like um, the the slim outcomes or like all of the stop gaps that were included in the election procedures? So no. like if there was an absolute electoral tie, like it goes to the House, I believe, and then the House votes, uh, it's proportion or it's based on state representation not total representation um so whoever has more representatives in each state wins that particular state and then those states get to vote against each other for the election results then i can't remember what happens after that um but i was like we were just learning all of this stuff and going the same same reaction you just had it's like this is crazy like we've we've never paid attention to this before. And honestly, you know, it's, there's only four times in, in history where uh, the electoral college has uh, gone against the popular vote. And it's like twice in the past 16 years. So it's also just a, a lot of, of, and I, you know, I wasn't really alive in, in, well, I was alive in 2016. I'm not, or 2000, I'm not 16 years old or wow, <laughs> 20 years old. Come on. Um, yeah. No, no. <laughs> Um, my my dates are all messed up. That's why you got the good, <laughs> good dates. Um, but yeah, man, it's uh, it's just crazy to to learn all of this stuff and you know have, be living in the the midst of this crazy just transition um, and be alive during you know global pandemic that hasn't really been at this this level since 1918 and just stuff like that. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. Well, what would you say as a news organization in terms of just information. I mean, obviously, we're in an age of crazy information, misinformation. What's the best to follow in terms of what you hear publicly is a lot of like outrageous comments and statements, and you see a lot of things. And what I am reading is that a lot of these things in terms of um, on a judicial level in courts, that it's being presented in a very different light because there's accountability, there's stakes there's things to be lost by saying certain things. What should you follow when you're seeing all this stuff? For, you know, it just because it can be confusing. Oh yeah, uh, to me, it's always following the the evidence, right? And because it all comes down to the courts. I think that's what you're you're kind of alluding yes. to. And just looking at what the specific arguments are in court, because court isn't determined on the basis of public opinion, right? It's like what can you prove, right? Like there's that saying, like, what can you prove in court? And mm-hmm. um, if, you know, there's there's stuff that you're alleging, uh, that's where the evidence is going to come out. It's going to be in the court cases. And that's one of the things that um, we've still, it appears to be kind of waiting for the, the type of evidence um, that you hear kind of in the public opinion. Um, but again, you know, you also hear on the flip side, uh, a lot of irregularities too, but that's something that you'd expect in a, a widespread election where there's record turnout and also the first time doing mail-in voting at universal mail-in voting at you know that scale. So you know you'd expect some regularities, but everything that we're hearing from you know William Barr to a lot of other uh, entities is that there's not fraud on the level that would overturn the results of the election. That doesn't mean that there's not the existence of fraud, but it does it does mean that it's there's not enough to overturn the actual results of the election. 
what you know, I hear this term irregularities all the time. What in in your point of view, what does that mean? Like what if the general public, I think they hear it, and this is I think my problem a lot of times with and how we take in things is we hear things, we go, yes, this is like irregularities or this fraud. We don't even know what it means, actually. What does that mean in your point of view? Yeah, well, it goes down, I think, to the, the voting process, right? Like the counting procedures. Mm-hmm. And there's different points uh, of verification, right? Like there's very set and specific um, orders and operations and ways of doing things. And that's kind of where um, where the focus, at least for, for me, would be. And understanding that in mail-in ballots, there's a verification process, right? I think it's like a 21-step process. Don't quote me on that, but I, it's a, mm-hmm. a, a, process, a multi-step process where uh, they're matching things from, you know, signature to address to, you know, so on and so forth. Um, so when they say irregularities, it's like the signature doesn't quite match up or, you know, the address doesn't match up to the previous you know, voter record or, or stuff like that that can't be easily and quickly reconciled. Uh, that's where the irregularities comes into play. I see. I see. And right now we're at the position where it seems like that. Uh, well, anytime you have an election with like 150 plus million people voting, I would imagine there's some level of irregularities, but uh, that there's such a wide gap in the, in the was it seven plus million at this point in the gap uh, between yeah. President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden or President-elect. So, you know, that seems yeah, but- like it'd be very difficult to ch- change that, you know? Right, but it's not the seven million that the where the focus should be, right? Because that's just the the overall popular vote. Sure, sure. The popular vote's not what what determines it. It's the the states, and in some states, right, like there's um, different uh, different variations in vote totals, right? From like I think it was twelve k in Wisconsin, which might be why they're taking so long to certify their results to yeah. uh, eighty one thousand elsewhere. So it varies from state to state. But on a popular yes. vote, yeah, it's like so it's seven million up. I think you're right, somewhere around that range. That's insane. That's Dude, actually insane. That many people have voted. Yeah, oh, it's unbelievable. I was looking at because uh, we were going to talk about also the election runoffs. Obviously, the you know, it's just, yeah. just like a, a normal um, way of of going here in the elections because that's the only thing that's up for grabs um, and something that's interesting yeah. for me to talk about. So looking into to Georgia. And uh, seeing the popular vote, or not the popular vote, but the total vote totals between 2016 and 2020, uh, 2020 was like something like 4.9 million. Uh, one second, let me pull it up because I actually had this saved. It's, yeah, like 4.9 million. And in 2016, it was under 4 million. Hmm. So that's like a 30% increase. Yeah. And absolute record turnout in the state of Georgia. And what's also interesting too, is just kind of like the history and the transition of Georgia. Cause this is the first time, um, again, if there's no, if the, there's no overturning of the election results, um, which it doesn't appear to be the case, it would be the first time Georgia has gone Democrat since 92. Um, Bill Clinton, man. Bill Clinton. Yeah, exactly right. And, uh, he was getting, I think it was like 41 or so percent of the overall vote total uh in georgia at that time um yeah which which is and it might not not have been clinton it might have been after clinton post clinton 
but the Obama era years was like, you know, 50 ish percent. Right. So very close. And now again, it's, it's very close. Like the gaps narrowed again from, from 20, 2011 to 2012, it narrowed. And then again, from 2012, 2016, it narrowed right from Democrat to Republican. And then again, from 2016 to today, it narrowed too, which is partially why you have these election um, runoffs. But in one of the races, it was because uh, one of the challengers, Leffler, um, like she was kind of the incumbent. She was appointed to fill Isaacson's seat after uh, he, he, his seat was vacated. Uh, she was running against another Republican, so they kind of split the vote totals that way. So she didn't make it to the, the prerequisite 50% um, to actually win the, the race, even though she was leading. Uh, so now it goes to a runoff with the top two candidates which is her, and I think she's running against Warnock. Warnock, Reverend Warnock. Yeah. yeah, and then on the other side, it's Ossoff and Purdue, I believe. What do you make of this, of how this is being covered, uh, both of those Senate races? I mean, it's it's kind of tough because I've, I've filtered myself to a certain degree. So I'm hearing this from the team. Um, which is good, right? Because uh, you know that means we're we're doing good things and uh, be <laughs> actually being able to you know um, expand and and do some things that we've dreamed of doing but haven't had the ability to actually execute on. But what I'm hearing from the team is it's it's the kind of the same old coverage that you you typically hear. Um, so on the the left, it's the invalidation of the election results. But what's also interesting is you're starting to hear a little bit on the right saying um, there's a, a certain type of rhetoric that appears to be on the right right now coming from um, some President Trump and some of his other officials of uh, you know the election result, results aren't valid. So some people are going, well, you know, if the election results aren't valid and you know elections are rigged, why would I go vote? Because it's just not going to matter. So then the GOP turnout would decrease, which would lead to a Democratic win in the state. So the focus appears to be on on both sides, um, campaign strategy-wise, focusing on turning out their bases. Because if they get their bases to turn out, uh, either one, that's what's going to determine the election, at least from their perspective. Uh, and that's, that's, again, what I'm hearing from the, the team, which is a, a pretty broad consensus. Are we expecting that this race, or is this speculation clearly, that this will be extremely like razor thin close, potentially, the results of this, these two runoffs? Uh, I mean, you'd imagine so, right? Because there's going to be a lot of money in this election, man, like a, a yeah. lot of it. And the Purdue Ossoff race was also super close to Purdue was actually 0.3% away from securing 50% of the vote. Yeah, 49.7. Yeah, 40, well, if it's 0.3, well, obviously it's 49.7. But uh, Ossoff got 47.9% uh, of the vote, too. The reason I remember that is because it's the numerals are switched. It was mm. 497 and then 479. Um, so that race was close as well. Uh, the other one was not super close. Um, actually, Warnock got 32.9% of the vote, so he led overall, but Leffler and Collins split uh, the Republican vote 259 and 20%. So if, again, you combine those, which is what you'd imagine would occur, um, you'd see around 45.9%. That's GOP. Uh, yeah. So close to 50. 
But then on the flip side, uh, Deborah Jackson also was in the, the Senate runoff race and she'll drop out as well. So that's another six and a half or so percent to Warnock, which would put him, what would that be? 33 plus seven would be around 40%. So you're looking at like 46, 40, which is kind of why, and this is what I also love, man. It's like all this stuff is so interconnected. The economy too is that's, that's why, um, it appears the economy is doing extraordinarily well is gridlock, right? And mm. what the economy loves is certainty, right? And the reason for that, and again, this is coming from a, a business owner here, is now you can invest in long-term projects because there's a little bit of stability for the next four years because you know that you know your taxes aren't going to go up or you know this thing isn't going to occur or the government is not going to implement this policy, which affects me in this way. So you have a little bit of certainty there. So you can invest in these like two-year projects, three-year projects, four-year projects that you're just kind of waiting to pull the trigger on. Um, so again, that's where the certainty comes into play, uh, which would kind of throw it into turmoil if uh, there's a, a democratic victory here and a, a majority in the Senate. House and yeah. obviously the executive branch. I've actually heard that that there's and from a lot of people that I've discussed that they actually prefer more of a um I guess you could say gridlock, but you know one it's not a majority on all levels right for that right and that there's some check, checks and balances I guess is kind of the term at least old school term I remember a lot you know there needs to be a check on this you shouldn't have a run on one thing or the other where there's just massive changes occurring regularly, you know? And that's, that's where my cynicism comes into play there, man. You, you got my, uh, my, my cynicism on politicians. Um, to, <laughs> Cause it appears what it's like these days. Nothing's, nothing's getting done. No compromise, no, uh, just toeing the line and, you know, get on board or get out. And I, uh, I don't know how sustainable that that can be. Yeah, I wonder about that because while it's good for a business maybe to have long-term projections that are stable, I mean, is it good for other things? I don't know. I mean, but it seems like there's just a lot of competing interests and a lot of political affiliations and hardcore lines of thinking that don't allow for a lot of flexibility and ideas and thoughts. Politics, baby. That's that's. What's that. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what else to say there. And what's also super interesting that, uh, again, just being a history buff, uh, going back to like the uh, revolutionary, like post-revolutionary war times, right? Like the ratification of the Constitution. You had the Hamilton camp, the Jefferson camp, and kind of like that uh, difference in philosophy and thinking that way. And just, you know, um, kind of understanding the, the uh, vitriol that they all had for each other at that time. Cause the way they would get the word out is similar to today um, media. Right. So they would just like lambast each other in these, these medias, uh, these media pages and the, the, uh, <laughs> the insults they would call each other are so like highfalutin and old fashioned. It's kind of yeah. hilarious to go through and just read it's like ye old dirt sweeper ye or like stuff like that oh, and it's I so just bad it I, <laughs> yeah right and and obviously that's you know not what it was um i i can't even think of an example on the spot uh but going back and looking at that stuff is hilarious i would i would highly recommend it sometime if we were together in a room i'd pull up a link and we watch some videos yeah. but 
maybe when uh, when all this is over and you finally have that that retreat I've been looking forward to. I know, right? I'm planning on getting out, getting out for sure. I mean, I got to come to Texas to visit because uh, the guy I just did the vertical farming technology um, conversation with, he was like, "Yeah, you come down to Dallas and we'll do a tour of the of the of the facility." You know, and I was like, "That will be incredible." Uh, I'm like, come on down, man. Everybody's yeah. coming to Texas. Apparently I Elon swear, Musk man. Elon Musk. Everybody's yeah. Everybody's you got everybody coming to, Texas. coming to Texas. You know, speaking of that, it's kind of off topic, but I wonder how that's going to shape the politics of Texas as Texas has grown more and more diverse and these races are closer and closer every year. It seems like more people are maybe more urban-based uh, city dwellers are moving to places like Texas, and maybe they're moving to Austin and, and Houston and other places. But still, I would imagine this migration of people will change somewhat of the political landscape of things. Oh, yeah, for sure. And just being located in Austin, it's been a running joke in the city for a while that uh, the California folks are coming in and you know coming in and taking over Texas. And what you'll hear a lot from... Um, uh, folks on on the right and just a lot of folks in general is uh, you know don't don't vote the politics that brought you down here and what's also um, interesting is you know I've been saying interesting a lot it's my word of the day but the <laughs> uh, being located there for the 2018 um, Beto race was really 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 interesting because that seemed to take over. Austin, like the the urban area, and traditionally, obviously, urban areas go um, democratic, and the urban areas and ex-urban areas lean a little bit to the right. And just seeing the passion a lot of folks had for his policies and platform and stuff like that, really, to me, shows that everything is is changing in the state of Texas and uh, maybe not everything, right? Cause you know, I have a very close perspective here and I've gotten myself away from the city a little bit. And um, you know, you obviously run into a different perspective as I mentioned when you get away from the city too. Uh, so it's, it's not really permeating everywhere. And I've also read things too that have said, you know, it's the, the people migrating from California to Texas. And again, I'm just zeroing in and making California the butt of all these jokes here. But, <laughs> But the the party affiliation is kind of split, right? So it might be a lot of fear mongering. It might not be. Uh, it's a long winded way to say I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> That's okay. You know, it's uh, Californians are definitely exiting California in droves, and uh, they're not just coming to Texas. We've experienced a massive influx of Californians in Washington State as well. And I think there's a big financial aspect of that. I mean, I think oh, Texas yeah. and Washington State both have no state income tax, I believe. Um, and that plays a huge role, especially with money, with people and quality of living. And, and California, I mean, I, I like it a lot, but it's it's incredibly difficult to live in California financially. Oh, it yeah. is insane. Dude, it's insane. unreal. It's unreal. I had a cousin who moved there after graduating from Michigan State living in san diego and Ooh. the dude oh yeah right and the the dude's living in a, a you know one bedroom apartment 45 minutes from the city paying three grand a month and i'm just going man like how how like how how do you do that and i was looking into after i graduated too also michigan state go green 
a little plug. Um, we're not doing well with football. So Spartans, come on, Spartans. <laughs> basketball, though, man, we can we can talk about basketball. All yeah, day. Uh, I'll I'll go there. Read number four, most recent poll. Uh, but <laughs> uh, when I was coming out of school, I was looking at either Silicon Valley or Austin at uh, a place where I wanted to go because I wanted the startup culture. I wanted to be around people who had that risk profile because I always knew I wanted to start a company. So the financial aspect was major for me. That's literally the reason I moved to Austin because I'm looking at apartments around the Silicon Valley area, you know, like the San Francisco area and living in Oakland, which is like a 45 minute commute, probably more uh, if, you know, because Google Maps is never correct in terms of actual mm-hmm. like, traffic numbers. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if there's actually a way to get it correct, but anyways, uh, like 45 minutes away paying thousands of dollars a month for like a studio or a one bedroom and also getting taxed to the hilt on top of that was not really my idea of, you know, I can save money to start a company. Like, I, I don't know if I would have been able to create the donut if that was the case. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. I mean, you can go San Diego, L.A., you know, San Francisco. I mean, whatever it is, it's too expensive. And yeah. like, people are getting very hip to that. And, uh, yeah, so up here, we, we see a ton of Californians moving up here cause it's, it's fairly inexpensive and, you know, it's a lot of things to do outdoor recreation. Oh, Obviously yeah. the weather is different. Uh, but you know, what's the good of having nice weather if you can never enjoy it or if you're just constantly killing yourself to try to stay afloat? I mean, oh yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no fun there. There's no time for anything. Uh, so do you see, I, is Wisconsin or uh, not Wisconsin, holy cow, is Washington, uh, like what are the politics of Washington? Like what's, what's that been like for you? Has that influx changed anything at all? You know, what's weird. So uh, before I lived here, uh, I assume the politics of Washington are just extremely, extremely liberal, like over the top liberal. And I would say that that's not the case. I think Seattle is incredibly liberal and some of the surrounding areas, but Washington state actually has a lot of country and rural areas. And so there is a very deep red element to Washington that I think the general public is not aware of. And actually, I think I looked it up like where I live, I'm right on the border and, and the towns surrounding it are, are, are very Republican, very conservative. Um, and it's pretty clear because, you know, where, where I live, a man during the election, I saw more trucks driving around with the Trump flag. And I'm like, where, where is this coming from? <laughs> you know, like this is like a, supposed to be like a super liberal state. But I think we make that assumption about certain states. There's plenty of blue states that have lots of Republicans. There's plenty of red states that have a lot of Democrats, Democratic folks there. It just depends. But I think overwhelmingly, I mean, it wasn't close in the general election. Washington was completely blue. They called that thing the minute it came out. Um, but I, I definitely think there's there's more of a sense of it's very progressive place overall. I mean, I think you can look at like, I'm not sure if you saw this, the passing of an organ of decriminalization of drugs and psilocybin, mushroom, maybe. mushrooms. I mean, like yeah. I am... I mean, you listen to my podcast. I, I talk about this stuff pretty freely, man. It's like something I do, I enjoy, I'm into it. I like. I think it's medicine. That's my own thing. Let me put it out there. That's my own thing. Peter is not associated with this. It's just my thing. Um, but I think there's more of an acceptance on the West Coast for things like that. And 
that they're like pushing the boundaries. California, Washington, Oregon pushes the boundaries on things constantly. We're like push hard, you know? Oh yeah. There's like that Portland stereotype too, right? Like yeah. that super ultra progressive, um, yeah. you know, like really, like you said, pushing the boundaries and yeah, man. I mean, I, I enjoy being around people who push the boundaries. It's, it's fun yes. to just kind of hear and listen. It, and that's kind of to me how I like imbibing information. So I enjoy listening to your podcast is through other people and through other people who are living the actual experiences that uh, would lend themselves to the type of information. Like results prove themselves out in in philosophy, right? Like Sabin's to kind of go off on a college football deal, right? Like Sabin's deal, the process, the process, the process, Right. And if your process is right, it'll lend itself to good results. So if you look at people who are getting good results and you follow what their process is, or you listen to what their process is and the information that they know, it's pretty likely that that's a great source of information. Yeah. And I mean, this is also to do with the election because these things happen on ballots. You know, obviously that marijuana went crazy again. I mean, it oh, yeah. passed what in four or five more states, and these weren't just liberal states; these are what you're traditionally very red states too. On these, oh things. yeah, I think there's a widespread acceptance here, and and what and this is speculation, but it would be a tie. I would be interested in, in seeing if there's a connection. Uh, opioid epidemic, right? Because the opioid mm. epidemic hit largely rural areas. Yes. Right? So that does that have something to do with it? I I don't know because it's kind of it, it's yeah, but it's kind of crazy also. Is that the UN? The UN just passed a resolution, or I don't know the actual technical term for it, but they removed medical cannabis, so medical marijuana, from their Schedule Four list, which had like heroin and cocaine on it, and they were equating medical marijuana with heroin and cocaine. Yeah. Um, and it's like, well, opioids are okay, but weeds not, especially with a lot of the, again, going back to the results for PTSD, for anxiety, depression, mm-hmm. again, at least just on a medical level, not even talking on a recreational level, just on a medical level, just looking again at the the science, the research, that's what it lends itself to. The process. Yeah. Like you said, and I dug deeper into this, the whole thing. And especially with the psilocybin thing. And it looks like in 2022, Washington is going to take up the same exact uh, ballot that Oregon did. They're going to try to do the sweep, you know, the decriminalization plus the psilocybin legalization. And that California is looking to do the same thing in 2024. So it feels like um, these things are basically, they mimic each other. So cannabis as it's sweeping through the United States and legalization in different states, that they're, the, the folks who are doing the psilocybin ballots, they're like, okay, we're going to take this, except we're not going to go the medical marijuana route and then recreational. We're just going to go, we're going to blow right through this and do oh, it all at the same time. The whole yeah. shebang. And so that's what they're doing with uh, marijuana too now. They're just going blowing right through medical, you know? Yeah. What do you make of the... Um, because, you know, if you said Washington's about to take it up, there's an argument counter to uh, 
Right, because like there's proponents of the ballot, obviously, or the measure, obviously, and yeah. then there's contractors to it. So the contractors, the argument I've heard is it would make these types of drugs more easily accessible, more so more prevalent. It's like, what what do you make of that? Uh, I think it's just fear, honestly. I think it's also a lack of knowledge, um, because I think there's a lot of these drugs have stigmas that are extremely old. They're old ideology. They're old fears. They're they're things that you grew up with generationally that, I mean, I take for me instance, when I grew up uh, in the eighties, I'm an eighties child and uh, weed was not something you ever would do. It was the marketing against it was completely like you blow your brains out. War on drugs, you man. Know, war on drugs. Like that was pump, just say no. And as I got older and I looked into it, it was like, what was I being told about yeah. this? And I think a lot of people, like they're very strongly against it, is they just don't have the information or they're being told something that's totally not true, which is weird in the time rim with all this crazy disinformation and stuff for that. It's the same thing with LSD, psilocybin. I grew up, it was like, you're going to jump out of a window. You're going to you know, trip major ball sack. You're going to just like completely <laughs> lose it. I'm not saying that doesn't happen to like a tiny percentage of people, but the reality of it is, is nothing like what you've been told. Nothing. No. Like, and now no, we're getting and- tremendous research from John Hopkins, Imperial College, it's in San Francisco. Like this, follow the results. It's life changing. Oh, it's we were uh, working on a concept because we're about to get on TikTok. Uh, the donut is. Um, we were working on a concept where uh, we're explaining kind of how we put our news together and how we just because full transparency, right? Like we we pitch ourselves as you know factual and impartial, so we wouldn't be factual or impartial. We didn't let you in on the process. So the ex, the kind of video um, we were going to put together is you know it's nearly impossible to be unbiased when writing about the news, right? But there's different ways to counter it, um, but we could somehow train an AI to write all the news in a truly unbiased fashion, mm. but then we would cut to like uh, the scene of a dystopian future. Right. And it would <laughs> be the point of exactly what you just mentioned, the power of messaging and propaganda. And in this dystopian future, this donut AI has become sentient, right? And its sentiency has caused it to mislead the entire human population because it's gained its trust over a period of time to nefarious ends where millions, if not billions of people end up dead. Um, Mm. So maybe we shouldn't do that. But what I'm trying to make the point of, like, I I think that could illustrate the power of propaganda because it's fascinating how a lot of these radical ideologies like in um, like 1930s Germany or uh, the rise of communism in China or Mm. in Soviet Russia, it's super interesting to understand how once the those types of ideologies had maintained their hold on power, um, how they or how they got their hold on power, how they maintained their hold on power, and a lot of it is the propaganda. It's it's messaging because if you know that old an old saying, if you repeat a lie often enough, it becomes the truth. It's like yeah. it's legit, man. They ain't lying. It is true, and especially a lie that goes unchallenged and has no accountability becomes a, a dangerous weapon and oh, that's kind of what you're seeing right that's what what you're seeing and like it takes people actually 
saying, okay, I want to actually look at this. I mean, honestly, that's what I did with everything that I've done in my life. I look at it. And when I look at these measures for psilocybin and decriminalization, I look at, I don't just go, oh, well, that's nice. Or I don't agree with that. I look at it and I look at the research. I look up the actual studies from John Hopkins. I read about the observations from divinity students who are doing these things. And then I, and then I take my own personal view is like, Someone like me, who has been very successful in my own business for 20 years in the fitness industry, I consider myself a very level-headed person. On some level, I feel it's my responsibility to do some of these things to see, like, this isn't going to be crazy, just so you know. I'm not some loser in some weird mystery van, you know, my life's falling apart. Like, it's the opposite. You know what you I know, mean? Like, there's some responsibility on my part, I feel like. In a van down by the river, man. It's that's not that's not where you're at. <laughs> but, I'm not yeah. listening to Clarence Creek, you know, Creed and stuff. And you know, see an R down there, wearing headbands. I mean, come on. <laughs> no, uh, no motivational speaker, Matt Foley. Oh, but no, 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 right <laughs> no. I'm I'm with you there. Like it's it's good to understand experiences from people who are relatable and that's where I think everything is, is going to, is just going in the future. It's, it's where people are relatable, but have I ever told you you'd get a kick out of this? Have I ever told you about uh, my uh, buddy's drug scouts of America idea that he's what? doing? <laughs> no. I, ever told you about, I haven't told you about that. So, no. uh, you'll get an absolute kick out of this. So this guy, uh, this guy is putting together two simultaneous projects and they're actually awesome. So the, the first one has to do with uh, kind of like a, artist co-op or like a creative co-op where they would subsidize artists for a period of time, typically like a year, 18 months, uh, where they would just be able to solely focus on creating art, like whatever it is, be it painting, music, whatever, just focus solely on that. Like their lodging would be taken care of, their food would be taken care of. They'd be in this, uh, you know, super creative environment around all of these people just focusing on creating um, so he's building that simultaneously with the Drug Scouts of America. What the Drug Scouts of America is doing is it's kind of like the Boy Scouts of America, but shall we say, uh, hope you know, without the the sexual assault cases, the, yeah. the case that was just recent. But, anyways, uh, using that rough comparison, um, people would join the association and they would pay dues. And there would be a uniform that would be distributed, and on it, there would be different patches. And these patches would allude to whatever drugs that you've done. So if you've done, like, psilocybin, like, you would get a psilocybin patch. Like, if you've done heroin, you'd get a heroin patch, like, so on and so forth. And the point of this, right, isn't to celebrate drug use. It's to get the associations to uh, support, um, I forget the specifics of it, but it's, some sort of um, micro like MDMA treatment for PTSD um, in, like individuals suffering from PTSD. So with it, like all of the dues are going to uh, treating individuals with these absolutely like cutting edge um, philosophies, I guess that go against the grain of everything that we've been told. Man, that's crazy. <laughs> like some, cool. I started thinking about these patches, and I was like, I, I, you know, this is unbelievable, man. You know, but what I, like, I think it's a funny idea. Like the football helmets, like the Ohio State, like you got the Buckeye. Yeah, 
Like would would uh well I'm not even gonna go there. Never mind. <laughs> I'd have a lot of stickers, man. I'm not gonna <laughs> <laughs> Nothing hardcore, although people would probably say my use of psilocybin and stuff is hardcore. <laughs> I, I know factually that's not true. Man, but so hardcore. You know, I'm just so hardcore. I mean, are we talking about beer here? I mean, that's a drug. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Cocktail? Liquor? Right? I mean, come right? on. Depends on depends on your definition. And that's that's What's kind of definition? Where, right. That's where I said is it's like I, to me it's up to every individual to take care of your own stuff. Um, and I know that might sound harsh. Like, obviously we should all have equal opportunity to succeed, but if we focus on taking care of our own stuff, you know, like if people want to do heroin, they can do heroin. Let's have a support system for them so we can get them off of it like that, you know, that type of stuff. But I'm, I would never try it regardless of whether it's legal. No, or not. I would never do heroin. There's, no. there's a specific line for me that, you know, I, I wouldn't cross and it would be stuff, you know, like like that of course it doesn't matter if it's legal or not and i think that would probably fall within a majority of the individuals just because we all know again going back to uh this might be where the messaging is correct the addictive properties and natures and just the life destroying things that occur from like meth and just stuff like that it's you know it, it's bad stuff right like that that stuff will kill you like destroy your stuff. life yeah yeah those are like life destroying drugs. And I think the general public is pretty much aware of that for that. But there's there's things that's been like seriously, like the, the stuff about weed and especially psilocybin, complete propaganda. Completely outrageous, in my personal, just my opinion, but just reading up on this, really diving into the research, is like these things should not be the same. And when I saw I saw that UN thing, the same thing you saw. And I was like, so what are we doing? Like, why are we going to be last on this on, on a federal level? You know, like well, the House just passed the decriminalization bill. Yes, but it's not going to yeah. go anywhere, right? Like the Senate's not even going to take no. it. Not until the third, uh, until the, the new Senate comes into play. But again, that's gridlocked. So going back to my, my term, it's, it's equal representation of both parties uh, in the Senate. And these dudes are probably smoking so much weed behind closed doors and stuff. <laughs> man, it's legal in DC. <laughs> Trying to tell me all these senators are on the up and up. Give me a break. <laughs> yep. Oh yeah. You, you wait. You mean you don't trust politicians? You're crazy. No, Peter. I don't. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. That's, you never know. That's, uh, that's my my blanket philosophy. Right. Like, of course, there are exceptions to the rule, but. My general rule is you know, politicians are not to be trusted. Um, so, you know, that's where I sit. Well, let's uh, switch a little bit here because we, we beat that up pretty good. Um, space exploration. What do you got for me, man? What's the donut exploring? Nice. Well, we there's a bunch of missions that actually happened recently. Um, the China one is one that's super interesting. It's just interesting. And again, word of the day, going back to interesting. I love that word. But uh, China... <laughs> sent a mission to the moon to collect lunar rocks. And while they were there, they planted their flag on the moon. There's only one other country to do that. There's only been two other countries that have successfully uh, collected lunar material and brought it back to Earth. That was the U.S. and the former Soviet Union. The U.S. is the only country in the world to have an emblem on the moon until a few days ago. Now China's got a flag on the moon. 
Mm. So that's one thing. Uh, Japan just sent a mission to an asteroid. Well, it didn't just send it. It said it six years ago, but they just completed a mission to collect asteroid material. Uh, they actually returned the the, um, the the craft returned in the middle of the Australian outback. So they went and retrieved it, I think, Sunday. So two days ago now, December 6th. Um, so they completed that. Tra- dude, the probe traveled. The thing traveled 3.6 billion miles. Whew. 3.6 billion miles just think about that for a second like not million not billion like that's crazy to me that that just amount of the distance um is it's just incredible um but the most interesting thing and this actually made me think uh, of you when i saw this yesterday did you see what the former israeli space security chief came out and said no oh dude okay let me pull up the quote here um because I don't want to, I need to do it justice because it's right. incredible. Uh, so let me pull up the Jerusalem Post article. Jerusalem. I've been seeing all types all right. of space stuff that's been like blowing my mind, man. All right, you ready? <laughs> so headline: ready. Former former Israeli space security chief says aliens exist. Humanity not ready. <laughs> what? Wait a minute, back that up, man. <laughs> what? Just wait. It it wait. It gets better, right? It gets absolutely better. This is my favorite story I think I've ever ran into. So he goes on to say that there is a galactic federation. It exists. And there they have been in contact with Israel and the US for years but are keeping themselves a secret to prevent hysteria until humanity is ready. That's not all. He also said there are under currently underground bases on Mars where humans and aliens already coexist. Oh, okay. Men in, men in black type people exist. But let me go to see if my suspicions are correct. I think he might also be selling a book. So I don't quite know how much of all of these are true. Yeah, here we go. His newest book, The Universe Beyond the Horizon, Conversations with Professor Haim Ashed. Okay. I don't know. I'm not sure what to make of that. <laughs> Man, it's, like I said, it's one of the, the favorite stories that I've, I've ever ran into. Because he also says aliens have prevented nuclear apocalypses. And we can very soon, uh, quote, jump in and visit the men in black, end quote. So apparently oh, men in okay. black. Will Will Smith be there? I mean. <laughs> uh, only if Tommy Lee Jones is there. I think they're a team. Exactly. I mean, that's an outrageous story. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I want to believe it. <laughs> right? How cool would that be if that was actually the case? I mean, how do we know what's underneath? We have no you know, idea. the surface of Mars. Have we probed underneath there? Do we know deep down what's going on? We don't know. I, that's a great question, actually. I'm not entirely sure. And also, We've just done surface stuff, right? I mean, I, I don't know. But then if we haven't, right, then here's another question, like, if we have and they've discovered something, or even if they have discovered something, whether they've said publicly they have or not, would they share it with us? 
I don't know. So that's so that's a news thing too. Like as the owner of a news organization, how would you deal with receiving news of that magnitude and potentially should I, should I not share that? Well, first and foremost, uh, as an enthusiast, I would probably, as long as they were peaceful, jump up and down for joy um, because I have been obsessed with aliens and pirates ever since I've been a kid. <laughs> so uh, it's been it's been very, very good interest of mine. But as far as uh, are you asking, like if if the government came to us and was like under penalty of death, do not distribute this information, like would we do it or not? Well, that or let's just say the donut found out outside of the government. Oh, dude, I'm sharing it with everybody, anybody and everybody. Really? Of course. Are you kidding me? Uh, this I would talk about this for a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, it's definitely coming out regardless of whether it's good or bad. <laughs> like, oh, I mean, it. yeah, but if it's bad, then what good does it do holding it from people? You know what I mean? Mm. Like there, there might there might be a shock, right? And we saw kind of there's a little bit of a precedent for that, is there not? Like the War of the Worlds broadcast, the Orson mm -hmm. Welles deal. Orson was that Welles, in, yeah, yeah. Was that in the 20s or was that in the? Ah, I forget what oh. year that was. Yeah, sometime in the early 1900s, I think. But uh, but the I don't know. It's a hypothetical, right? Like it's not like you. Okay, you're sending out this newsletter. You're doing all these things, unless you just pop on there up there. Aliens discovered underneath, like, and it's not a joke. It's like, but would people believe it? I, I don't, I don't know. Because um, that's another interesting question, right? Is the, one of the, the, um, not theories, but techniques of propaganda would be to include tidbits of true information with a whole bunch of falsehoods, right? Like you need to build some sort of reasonable foundation before you get into making connections that are a little bit of leaps, like you build that base level of trust. So like truths, the best truth, the best lies are built on a kernel of truth. You ever heard that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's, uh, I guess, I, you know, I don't know, like it could already exist out there and we just don't know about it because we dismiss it. Or it's just one of the things as I, you know, I grow older and learn more and more and more about the world. It's like the only thing really definitive is, history but we also don't really know it either and mm. that also goes back to like pre 10 to 12,000 bc because we're still finding stuff every single day that's like oh my well we thought it was one way but mm. guess what it's not it's another way uh and that's happening every single day so the gist i take of everything is like this is what we know right now but at some point in the future, that could change. It's like strong beliefs loosely held. I think that's like a Mark Andreessen, uh, Mark Andreessen mm. thing. What about this light in outer space that no one seems to know what it is? <laughs> Again, it's like all speculation. I, I don't know, right? Like, and no one's entirely sure. But one of the things, and this has nothing to do with the light, it's just something I stumbled across that uh, I, I find fascinating. One of a uh, theory that's put out there by a professor. Um, again, I, I don't know how credible it is. I don't know how credible he is. But the theory has goes something like aliens exist and they have discovered a way to harness the power of gravity to power their civilization. And the most dense thing ever is a, 
a black hole, right? Like it's one of the, it's just pure density. So we don't know what exists on the other side of a black hole. So what if they've figured out a way to harness the power of gravity to obscure themselves from existence, which would mean that every black hole that we see out there is actually a civilization. Oh, me chills up my spine on that one, man. Oof. Theory, right? Again, I don't know how credible it is. I, it's not one of the things I feel like you can prove because, again, nobody knows what's on the other side of a black hole. So it's like, uh, you know, I think this. It's like, well, let me disprove. Oh, wait, I can't. I think that. You know, it's just kind of like where the argument goes. But it's always fun for me to just speculate about that stuff and talk about it because nobody does know. And as long as you can agree on that before you start, there's no way to get, like, I guess, angry or vitriolistic with each other. You start from a foundational yeah. principle and you build from there. Well, space, how can you, I mean, okay, so we have all, now we have people, thousands of people who work in exoplanet, who are exoplanet scientists now. And, uh, well, like 20 years ago, there's maybe like one or two people working in it. This was based off a podcast I listened to, the Kepler team. And, uh, I thought it now that so many people are looking for exoplanets and we keep finding more and more and more. And sometimes, honestly, I get pretty dejected by it. Cause I'm like, I mean, we're not going to go there. Oh, the closest one is like 250 million light years away. I'm like, whoop de doo And uh, okay. I mean, nothing's going to happen here. Well, it's also the, the Hubble's law too. I was always looking into the origin of the universe because again, it's fascinating to me to find out how we came about. And uh, the Hubble's law is that the because the Big Bang theory is now widely accepted as consensus. There was, I think, it was SETI state theory or same universe theory or something like that. And what uh, the gist of that theory was is the universe existed the same way before us and it's going to exist the same way after our civilization's done as well right? like it's a constant state the universe is in a constant state but contrary to that's the big bang theory which is that the world started from this like infinitesimally small point and there was some sort of catalyst we have no idea what it is but it created this massive explosion this big bang that caused the universe to just expand rapidly and what Hubble's law, Hubble's law essentially proved this theory because he found out that the exterior of space as we know it, like the furthest we can see out into space, the further out you go, the faster it's accelerating out from that singular point. So the outer edges of the universe are expanding more rapidly than you know we can even travel unless we can figure out a way to travel faster than the speed of the big bang which is constantly accelerating the further away that it goes so it's like you are never ever 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 it's not happening be, no dude we're not gonna be able to explore it all <laughs> like ever like we're happy to ran around that for a second and i hate that because i, I want to know everything and i know that just that's like man i freaking hate that but it's reality it's reality. It's not going to happen. That's why I get dejected when I see all these plants. I'm like, eh, okay. Just <laughs> get all worked up for nothing. It's like when I watch that show Ancient Aliens sometimes, and uh, I keep, keep getting sucked back in. Every once in a while, I'm like, maybe they're going to tell me something that's true. And then I watch it, and I'm like, okay, there's nothing here. Uh, it's like it's the guy with crazy hair talking about possibilities. <laughs> that meme? That's what the meme comes from, right? The aliens yeah. with the kind of crazy eyes in here. I mean, how will we even know, honestly, too, with this? You know, the more I think about it is like, okay, um, will we even know 
what intelligent life actually looked like. I mean, we have this lens through what we look like and people tend to look at things and they speculate, well, maybe it's like a humanoid thing. Maybe it's invisible. Maybe we don't even know what it looks like. How would we even know if it existed, if it's completely different than what our eyes are used to? Uh, Like, would it be invisible? Is that that what you're saying? Or would would we just not, like, would it, uh, yeah, because it might not even be able to communicate with us, right? How can we recognize something that we've never seen before? Maybe it, it, it's in a different, Okay, I'm really getting cr- strange here. Just follow me here. This is strange. Oh, I know. Dude, I think about it this like is a... be- this is me, man. I'm telling you, you this is a little nutty. I'm just no, <laughs> like, no, like, say, like this is this is awesome, right? Because if like if where you're going is every new species we discover on Earth could potentially be alien life forms, and they just can't communicate for me. I am all about. I'm all I'm about just exploring saying. that. Think about it this way, okay? I've be- I've been very much into consciousness and exploration of consciousness, whether it's AI, human, whatever, blah, blah. But I mean, you realize your consciousness as a child is nothing like your consciousness as an adult. How you view those things are very differently. The form with which you're in has changed. How you see the world has changed. I mean, I think about as a military kid growing up, when I lived in Kansas on Fort Leavenworth, I thought the house we lived in was gigantic. I went back as an adult. It would look like a Tic Tac to me. Like it was like, and it was so foreign to me. So if I can't even explain my experiences that I had as a child and understand the scale and the size of things, how would I even recognize something that traveled an ocean of stars that was potentially more advanced than me? but then maybe had this ability to actually blend in and be unrecognizable. Or maybe it's just energy. I don't know. It's like, we don't even know what we're looking for. No, we, I mean, we, we really don't. And if, you know, we're, we're getting there, that that might be what, you know, the God is, right? Like God might just be pure energy or that might be what connects us all. Like at least to me, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I have absolutely no idea, but the idea that we're all connected in some way, shape or form, it feels a little too tangible to me. And I know that kind of is like contradictory right? like tangible and then feeling, but I don't know any other way to explain that because I, I do feel like we could be all connected because we all come from the same place ultimately. Well, there's a theory, uh, that again, this is a very psychedelic based thing, but it's also done by very hardcore scientists. This isn't like crazy people saying things that, you know, the search for consciousness may not be what we think it is. And that what we're looking for, it may be that our brains are just the antenna for a universal consciousness that exists, that we're just receivers of an energy. I don't know. I mean, I heard this theory and I was like, well, it's interesting. I mean, how would that explain I, the variances, though? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, be, man. I mean, it'd be, I it, it's always interesting to me to explore all of this stuff because we, we've had confirmed – we've talked about this before on your podcast, UFO encounters. And I think your right. dad might have even had proximity to people yes. who know stuff about it. If not, he even knew yes. stuff himself. But then we'd have to kill you if he told you kind of thing. But – uh yeah, Man, he worked like, at Area 51. Well, he, you know, he did. Yeah. yeah. And that's, I, I would love to hear more stories about that. If you have any stories oh, you can actually share. <laughs> I wish there were stories, man. 
Oh, man. But I, I, I have a lot of government one. stories. <laughs> oh, well, well, like what kind of government stories? What are we, what are we talking about? <laughs> you got so excited when I said that. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I was speaking to my dad the other day because for anybody who listens to this podcast, I don't think my dad would be upset me telling you. It's not like I don't think he cares that much, honestly. But <clears throat> my dad was a, a, a very well-known person in the United States military for a very long time, for almost 30 years commander of um, Fort Hamilton, uh, which is basically like a celebrity battalion commander position in the United States military. I mean, it's it's super high up and also served um, in the Pentagon and was in the congressional hearings and was also a regular briefer of President Barack Obama, like a weekly basis. He saw the president or that. This is what he did. And a lot of his stories were just, I think, in summation about it was more of just like the corruption of the United States government. And being on the inside is very disheartening because you see the worst of people in that. So your whole don't trust politicians, I think my dad subscribes to that tremendously and had learned a lot of things about a lot of people that you may see in the public that would be very disappointing for you uh. to know. Man, it's it's power, right? It's that pursuit of power, and it's the eternal freaking human struggle, man. It's like any sort of system that just has a, some sort of predisposition to absolute authority and power yeah. is yeah, it's just intoxicating, and people will do anything to get there and then keep it. Like you usually look at Putin, like that dude's just offed people left and right. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, like Stalin and Mao as, you know, Mao killed like 40 plus million mm-hmm. people with this stupid policy. We can get into those if you want to, because sure. I'm, I'm very passionate about this because like this is one of the things that I really appreciate about the United States as a country is the form of government we have, because knowing what exists out there throughout all of human history, like forget even just present day, but all of human history, how recent this institution is from humanity's existence is incredible. And I'm talking about like democracy and federalism and and stuff like that, Uh, like a a republic, right? And it's unbelievable to know that these types of evil existence, like the evil governmental structures and existences exist today. What I mean by that is the structure itself might not be evil, but the structure itself incentivizes evil actions and decisions. Mm. And even different like incidental um, catastrophic things because you have one person that's the ultimate authority on everything. And I'm sorry, man, but one person does not have ultimate knowledge. I don't give a shit who you are. No. You have, you, nobody knows everything. So like in China, in communist China, what uh, Mao did is he wanted to – so he, he – this is really, again, fascinating to find out the origin of this stuff. He had visited Soviet Russia for a ceremony, and there was this massive like pop and pomp and circumstance and the show of force that the Soviets rolled out for him because obviously he's like a state leader. And there's this like, you know, dick swinging contest on a, a, a big stage. But yeah. he saw all of this and he goes, man, I want China to be like that. So what he did is he wanted to turn China into an agricultural power. And he mandated crop uh, on top of switching. <laughs> so he switched farmers and then uh, people in the city. 
right? So he he flip flopped those people, and then he put these unrealistic, unreasonable uh, crop mandates on all of the farmers, meaning they had to uh, grow a certain amount of crops, or else they would be taxed exorbitantly, or even worse, right? Like hauled off to jail or beaten. Um, so they were incentivized to hit these mandates, but they couldn't actually hit the mandates. So the penalties were so severe that they're digging into their own pockets to hit these mandates. And everybody's scared to tell their superior that, oh, you know, we can't hit these because their superior is scared to go to the next level and so on and so forth, right? It's like a chain reaction. So it just presses all the way down from the top where everybody's scared to kind of like push back against the system, even when it's having these catastrophic, uh, like these catastrophic deals. Because what ends up happening when these peasants, these farmers are dipping into their own pockets, their food reserves, their food sources to meet these unrealistic mandates, well, they're starving, right? And on top of that, Mao had mandated he wanted to kill all the sparrows, right? And the sparrows eat very specific types of bugs that were beneficial to the types of crops that they were growing. So on top of these unrealistic mandates, he wanted to kill all the sparrows, which incidentally led to these uh, lower than normal crop yields when they're trying to meet these unreasonable demands. So it's, there's all of these incidental things that occur from somebody having this absolute authority and power that have these catastrophic rippling effects. Like millions of people die from starvation because of that, man, because of one dude's decision. Terrible decisions. Crazy. Yeah, which is why I think our country, as as much as turmoil may be and this and that, no system's perfect, but ours is pretty good, actually. I mean, it's because we we keep one person from becoming a dictator. We that was put in there so that there's all these checks and balances and that all these basically compartments exist to keep one person from extending their timeline in office or doing all these crazy things. There's a Winston. Oh, sorry. You, you, you broke up there. Oh no, we're good. No. Um, so what I was going to say is there was a quote I ran into from Winston Churchill the other day on democracy. And regardless of what you think of Churchill, I know there's some uproar of uh, his decision Mm -hmm. to kind of reroute uh, food, sources from the Bengalese, I believe. But anyways, focus just on the quote here, uh, because he did end up helping to save the, the free world against the Nazis, right? Again, good with the bad. But the quote is, no one pretends that democracy is perfect or all wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried. <laughs> And I was like, yeah, I think that's that's accurate, okay. right? It's not a perfect system, yeah. but it's the best we got right now. And that doesn't mean best it can't be better, but it's the best we got right now. And until we come up with a better system that we can all agree upon, I think we need to agree upon some like foundational principles, right? Like a new covenant uh, where we're agreeing upon, because we have such a, and this is so cool, is like a multicultural, diverse population. And it's so unique because when you look at the world, most po- most populations are largely homogenous. Like you look at they the are. Nordic yeah. countries, it's like 90% of the same people, you know, and you yeah, don't have monocultures. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You don't have that in the U.S. So you do have this kind of like clashing of cultures because some of them have certain precepts that aren't necessarily 
compatible with each other if you like extrapolate them out to the extremes. So at some point you're going to have these, cause everybody's got the special interest group, right? They're just going to clash. And when you have those, those types of clashes, you need something to, you know, you just need something to kind of resolve that. And what to me resolves that is agreeing upon something like the first amendment. Cause I think that's something that we all can agree upon. It is like freedom of speech, press, religion, and I would even add, go a little bit further in interpretation, like the freedom to be who you are, as long as it doesn't infringe upon somebody else. I think if we can all like agree on that, that's a great starting point, and we can just build from there. Yeah, I think so. <clears throat> I think it's it's certainly a system that I think is the best of all the systems. And while the, you know, over time, people forget how young of a nation. We are, you know, we're not these thousand year old, you know, 2000 year old civil, you know, countries like we're not Europe and stuff, you know, like this, this thing has been around for hundreds, like literally just hundreds. So we're babies on the world stage. Yeah, you go and overseas, you look at the buildings, they're like, yeah, this is built crazy. in the hundreds. You're like, oh, uh, okay. We have buildings from the 1800s. <laughs> like, that's cool. Yeah. I mean... Think about it. It's just barely been around. And so how do we, how do we continue to grow? And, and I think that's sometimes where we get stuck as a nation is we like tradition, um, but we want to move forward too. So how do we have traditions and things that have meaningful things to us about our past while also moving forward, but not being so forward driven and forgetting the past and not being so much about the past? You know what I mean? <laughs> like. Yeah. It's a fine line to walk. It really is. Yeah. And it's understanding who we are and where we came from. Again, good good with the bad, right? Because there's a lot that's been kind of glossed over in our history. It's some of the stuff that we, you and I have talked about before, too, especially like the treatment of Black Americans throughout the entire yes. history of the, the U.S. And taking the – that to me is like America's just biggest sin, right, is the sin of slavery. Yes. So the the absolute knowledge of that combined with um the good stuff too right the u.s has also been uh a, is also like a lot of incredible stuff has come out of the u.s and its form of government and its structure right like its foundational principles even though we haven't lived up to them over its an entire course of uh, of existence so knowing all of that stuff and then agreeing on where we can go from here you know, I think that's like that, that has to be the solution. But then again, it's like we, you and I can sit here and talk about it all the time. It's like, how does it actually happen? And that's, I don't know. Well, think about it also too, on the sense, I think it's a good segue into, you know, we talk about democracy and, and the things about it. And then an aspect of capitalism and startups. And you mentioned about IPOs. What do you make of all this thing? Incredible increase in all of these things. I well, the pandemic just accelerated everything. So these trends that were beginning to exist, that companies thought they had a little bit, so they're like squeezing the juice out of the industries that they're currently in, while kind of slowly preparing for the transition to whatever the next thing is in that particular industry. Uh, while that's happening, you know, they you think you have a little bit more time than. Uh, global pandemic hits out of nowhere, right? And a lot of stuff gets shut down, the economy gets upended. So when that's happening, the economy is accelerating, you know, five to 10 years in the future at a time. So you see these companies like Zoom that have these exorbitant 
stock jumps, right? Like in, even, and that corresponds in revenue too. I think the revenue was up something crazy, like 400% year on year. Um, something was up 400% year on year, but the, the point is they're growing like crazy while there's other uh, retail companies that are just filing for bankruptcy one after the other, after the other, right? It's like dominoes. And then you have on top of that, a lot of the, the small businesses that are dying because they're not able to recoup their revenue while they still have costs. And like the stat I, I mentioned, I think it might've been before we were on that 31% of businesses in New Jersey I'd seen had gone under uh, since the start of the pandemic. So, you know, kind of mass destruction on that scale. I know that's that's a, a very loaded word, a very charged word, maybe not the right one, but the point is there's a, a widespread um, downturn of small business while people are making these massive bets on the future because it's been accelerated. Uh, which again is just fascinating uh, because you you did see these trends emerging, but now I was just listening to something earlier that was talking about when people uh, are starting to work from home now and they're going, well, why the hell haven't I been doing this the whole time? Like I'm more productive. Right. I don't have this commute at all. Around my family, you know, this is this is pretty, you know, this is pretty sweet. Like why am I going to go back to the office? And then you just go a little bit further and you're going, well. Hmm. So why am I doing all this work for somebody else, right? And what I hope you're going to see is this absolute explosion. And I think you might have, you might already see it. I don't have specific numbers, but I've seen a lot of things that indicate the specific trend of a lot of people starting businesses during the pandemic. Um, just some, some of them just to fill the time. And with such a low barrier to entry these days, I saw something the other day that today, uh, like today's day and age the cost, the average cost to begin a software startup is around five grand, five grand, like 10 years ago, it was 50. So the costs are going down to start like the barrier to entry for all of these industries is just going lower and lower and lower and lower. And what I really think you're going to see is a lot of emphasis on skill sets and particular individuals um, who have outsized influence, like the creator economy, because you see that both in journalism, right, in the media, and mm -hmm. also uh, I don't know if you're, and this is for like our younger audience, uh, but like a David Dobrik or a big Instagram influencer or social media star who's built followings, like a Charlie D'Amelio. If you're a, a, a knowledgeable about anything TikTok related, the one to pass a hundred million followers on TikTok, like a hundred million people, dude. Like that is a lot of freaking people. That's a ton of people. Jeez. And that's just one platform. So then, you know, you just think about the amount of uh, just the amount of opportunity within that. And that was created by one single person, right? So it's like the, there's endless opportunity there to, to be, I don't want to say mind because there's the, uh, the, the predisposition for like value created, right? Like you don't part with money unless you think, whatever you're paying for is worth more than what you're paying for unless you're forced to do it. But that's another story. Yeah. I, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I, I think about what you're saying and I think there are more people who want to work for themselves. I mean, I, at least from my interactions, I'm talking to a lot of people. It seems to be the, the, everybody's swimming up that stream. Like how do I create my own business? How do I work for myself? And, and actually, I think it's good. I mean, I, I own two businesses. I work for myself. 
And you're talking about somebody who never thought they would do that ever. Really? That was never my, ever my dream to work for myself. Never. And uh, I like working for companies. I enjoyed it. I've had lots of great roles in different companies. Uh, but now that I'm working for myself and I'm just kind of like this existence where I just kind of come and go as I please, I'm like, hmm, this is pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I like doing this. <laughs> what, what was the catalyst for you then? If you were just kind of like, ah, you know, I'm having a good time working for somebody else. Again, nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing wrong with that to each their own. Yeah. Like, where, where did that change for you? I think it was um, a buddy of mine had an idea. I think it was that I was never around a lot of entrepreneurs growing up. Um, I just didn't know a lot of people who had their own business. And uh, I think a couple of people that I knew that decided to start their own business, it shocked me that they wanted to do it because I saw them a lot like myself, like they were just like company guys or, you know, and, and uh, I said, huh, I wonder if I could do that. It was just, it was me was just really like, I saw other people that I respected feel like I want to do this. I mean, and these are people who are in jobs like mine, who are very cushy, very comfortable, who are willing to take a risk. And I mean, I'm 40. I started my companies when I was like 40. I mean, it's not like I was a young startup guy in my twenties. And I said, oh, I'm going to do this. Like a lot of the kids today, I think that's kind of the culture. You start something up, it's more acceptable. I didn't grow up like that. And so for me, it was a big risk starting something new in my forties. Yeah. And after I had spent a long time working for somebody else, you know? Yeah. Well, that's like a misnomer too, is uh, most of the startups are started by people, I think in their forties, I want to say, and again, oh, really? Number it's like I think it's like the average age is forty five of a founder of a startup. That's crazy, right? And it's you always think about like these young like Mike Mark Zuckerberg, you know, Silicon Valley type uh, go getter, you know, young folks. Again, I use young twice, but that that was always the <laughs> general you know stereotype for me of startups. But to find out it was kind of the antithesis of that is a little crazy. But here's another kind of crazy stat. Um, around 97% of VC capital goes to white-owned businesses. 97%, man. What? Right? Isn't that crazy? Right? <laughs> right? Like, that's, that's nuts. Yeah, man, that's, that's a little unbelievable because that to me is where there's a whole ton of just opportunity for you know folks yeah. devastated by the opioid epidemic to inner cities to you know whatever like that if you can prop up people who are creating stuff that they're really good at and passionate about that like that's the best way to me to lift yourself out of poverty right and you own that nobody can take that away from you that's freaking yours you know what i mean like yeah. you can pass it on to your kids that is 100% yours and that's like generation changing. And that's what I would absolutely love to see. I think that'd be really cool. I think it'd be cool too. And I always think about my daughter, like she sees me working in my businesses and, but she also saw me working for somebody else too. So she doesn't just, just have one side of the equation. She's seen me go to a place, run a facility, report to other people. And then she's seen this other aspect of where I control my day. I control how much money I make. And, and for, I think it's good for her to see both sides for me and she can make a decision, you know, like, Hey, I've seen my dad 
probably the majority of her life she've seen me this way at this point. Um, but at least she's seen that. She's seen different aspects of it and she's exposed to it. Because sometimes I think, and I got into this with a, a guy who's into like uh, tech startup culture and kind of the lack of cultural context in the tech startup industry and how, um, you know, there's this kind of pull sometimes it's like, oh, you have to work for yourself. You have to have your own business. And I always tell people like, you don't, it's, there's nothing wrong with working in somebody else's business. There's not, I just don't want people to get this concept. Like everything has to be about own your own business. Yes, I do that. But also if it came down to it, I would go back to that if I really needed to, or had to some desire to do something else and maybe, but I don't think it's all bad that I think it's, there's plenty of great companies to work for. And there's plenty of great things about having your own business too. You know? Oh yeah. Well, it's also risky as hell, right? That's, that's the downside yeah. of it. You know, it's, you're, you're taking a risk and you're betting on yourself and it's tough out there. Like it's hard. The competition is it just, it's crazy, man. Like the iron sharp iron. That was one thing we used to say in the Michigan state weight room all the time. Like in colleges, mm-hmm. iron shop is iron. And then the molten lava, right? Like that was, that was it. And the competition is a way of weeding out people who aren't dedicated or who aren't, uh, I hate to say it, like talented at specific aspects or fail. Yeah. You know, certain like somebody might be really, really, really good at the sales aspect, but not be able to do the admin side of it and have a whole ton of employees steal from them because they can't actually do payroll, right? Like, there's the, <laughs> right. there's a million of different reasons for that startups could fail and early stage companies can fail. Like, it's not a foregone conclusion. It's like eighty plus percent of businesses uh, close within five years. So just Crazy. playing odds, you know. Again, going back to the numbers, playing really rolling the dice there. You're not going to see a whole ton of success, just you know, numbers wise. You're just not. And uh, I do want to clarify something too. The I just had our team run a search on the average age of entrepreneurs at the time they mm-hmm. founded their companies. Forty-two years old. Oh baby, <laughs> isn't that amazing? See, I, I, I literally was like, oh, this is you know, you're seeing this wave. It's what's the the media and what you're seeing. But see, completely opposite of what I thought. Yeah, on that. Power, Isn't that power incredible, dude? Power of messaging. It's power it's, of messaging. Oh, you repeat a lie often enough, it becomes the truth. It's unbelievable. And that, dude, that that parlays me into something that I've been dying to talk about. If you'll kind of, uh, yeah. you know, you kind of grant me this uh, this this platform here, but pirates. Uh, and what I'm learning about pirates goes against a lot of what I learned and what we all learned in pop culture. What is um, this? Oh man, like the the fascination. Like for me, it started with the knowledge that piracy um, was a direct catalyst for the American Revolution. And there's a ton of theories out there that say the foundational principles, like the Declaration of Independence principles, which we haven't always lived up to, uh, were a direct result of pirate influence in the colonies. So like understanding that and understanding how like the American formation story actually predates America itself, this kind of like tells the story of the formation of the country from feudalism all the way up to the start of the American Revolution. It's fa- it's fascinating, man. Pirates? Pirates, dude. Pirates. So wow. uh, it so the it started with feudalism and you know what feudalism is? Yeah. So uh, for those listening that don't know, um, 
feudalism is a form of government where like back in the day, there's a ton of conquering, right? Not to say there's not today, but there's a ton <laughs> of conquering back in the day. And when a new king would take control of the kingdom, he would appoint nobles. And typically they were like lieutenants or people he owed special favors to. And those lieutenants the, who became nobles would in turn uh, be granted lands within the kingdom where peasants would live on the land and be able to farm the land and work on the land and would pay a tax, be it a part of their crop or like actual monetary stuff for the privilege, right, of living on the noble's land. And what happened around the like the mid-1500s is feudalism started to change a little bit where the nobles are kicking the peasants out. They're saying like, get the hell out of here, taking their livestock and just kicking them to the curb. So you have these peasants, these people that are just kind of like the lowest of the low of society. That's just how they're looked upon at the time. Uh, nothing. They have nothing just to close on their backs and whatever they could salvage from the home as they're being ushered out by the, the army that the uh, nobility had at the time. They don't know where to go. Like, what the hell are you going to do? So what they ended up doing is congregating around coastal cities because that's where all the economic opportunity was. So you have these poor, disaffected, desperate uh, individuals who have two options in a major industry. That's the shipping industry, right? Like it was one of the biggest industries at the time. So if you're going to do something uh, where you can get your fortune, it's going to be in, in the, the sea. But uh, a lot of times what would happen is there's two choices um, to go to sea. It's the Royal Navy or merchant ships. Right? You only had those two choices. And either one you chose, the captain ran the ship. Like the captain's word was freaking law. It was ironclad. No matter what the captain said, you had to do it under penalty. I think it was death because um, it was they would be charged as mutiny if you forewent the captain's orders. And upon return, you'd be put to death. And the captain also had the ability legally to do that on the ship itself too. So there's so many stories of these captains abusing their power again, right? Like absolute power to corrupts. Absolutely. So these poor disaffected sailors would push back against this absolute brutal treatment and they'd mutiny and become pirates. And one of the super interesting things I saw too is on top of all of this misery and whatnot, a specific number I really gravitated to was on voyages which would sometimes last for years at a time, the average death rate, the average death rate of seamen, crewmen on these voyages was 40 to 50%. Jeez. 40 to 50%, dude. So like if you and I were going to go on a voyage back in the day, one of us would be dead. And chances are, you know, True. both of us could be after two. Just absolutely crazy. So again, the royal ships and the, the merchant ships, on top of all of that, when they would come back into port after these voyages, it would sometimes last for years at a time. And again, you're a sailor. You're not getting paid for your time while you're on the ship. Right? You get paid sometimes to go on leave, but a lot of times they wouldn't actually get paid until return. But there were things called pressing gangs because no one really wanted to go uh, be sailors on the ships because it was such a miserable existence. So there would be these crews of people that were paid by merchants and the Royal Navies to just snatch people up, toss them on ships. The ship would leave and they would mm. be forced into service and the previous person wouldn't have to pay them at all. 
So you can imagine with all of these conditions, right? And just knowing historically what you know about your station in life, why people would rise up against that sort of, you know, tyranny. And it's like, it's like fighting the system kind of thing, right? So as they started to you know, fight the system, they're disrupting shipping lanes far away from the UK, far away from Britain, because Britain had this massive Royal Navy at the time. And this massive Royal Navy was fighting these battles against France and Spain. And what would end up happening is these people would mutiny, uh, take over ships, sail to the colonies far away from where Britain could actually enforce their rule, uh, get colonial governors in on the take, and they would issue what were called letters of mark. Um, if you're not familiar with letters of mark, it was it's like government-sanctioned piracy, essentially. So an example would be like if England, right? It's crazy. But like if England uh, would be at war with Spain, it was like uh, ancient proxy wars is it might be a good way to explain it, where they would grant letters of mark to these privateers, giving them the legal right and ability to attack and plunder the ships that they were at war with. So if it was like an English merchant or a, a Spanish merchant ship and they were at war with Spain, they had the green light to go just ransack that bitch. And they would take 10 percent. Wow. Right. They would take 10 percent of that and toss it to whatever government gave them the letters of mark. So the government would be in on the take of this this piracy. Dirty. Right? So this happened for a prolonged period of time before this golden age of pirates even came about. And uh, when the uh, when the, the pirates started infiltrating the, the colonies, essentially, the governors would grant them these letters of mark. And under cover of these letters of mark, the pirates would plunder these Spanish ships, French ships, just anybody and everybody, and then would return to that port again under that guise of the letters of mark and spend all of their money in that particular city. Right? Like that's what the governor liked because it kept the populace happy. And he also got uh, like <laughs> tossed stuff under the table that was like two to three times his annual salary uh, every time they would dock in port. So obviously he's going to be like, yeah, come on in. And as the pirates started to come on in, they're uh, having this influence on the colonies and people are starting to you know, fall in love with the pirates, having families with some of them. And they're beginning to actually establish a presence throughout the colonies. And they had on ships this really unique forward thinking way of governing themselves, where instead of like on the merchant ships and the royal ships, uh, instead of the captain's word being law, the captain served at the pleasure of the crew, not the other way around. And the crew would vote on all of the decisions. So they'd be like, all right, do we want to plunder this ship over there? Do we want to dock at this port? They would all vote on that. And it was like a democracy where they would all agree upon ahead of time what, um, how the plunder would be distributed. So like the captain would get a share and a half, the quartermaster would get a share and a quarter, uh, the crew would all get an equal share. There was a fund set up for if you lost your leg, you got compensated X amount. Extra. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's crazy, man. If you lost your arm, you got compensated Y amount extra. In some cases, your family would be compensated if you died on that voyage. So these pirates were really forward thinking in terms of forming their, uh, forming their kind of structure, their hierarchy. And it stemmed from wanting it to be the antithesis of everything they had experienced under those merchant and royal ships. And as Britain started to kind of like enforce um, 
the laws in the United States, the United States colonists are going like, who the hell are these people to come across this entire sea? We haven't heard from them, you know, pretty much since we came over here. We actually came over here to escape them. But now they're going to come over here. They're going to uh, persecute members of our community who have been here for generations. You know, that was kind of like the catalyst because this is all happening in like the late 1600s to like the 1730s ish. Um, and then obviously the American revolution was 1776. So towards the tail end of the pirate eradication, which occurred because these governments are starting to crack down on pirates. That's when this sentiment, this anti England sentiment came about in the United States. And that's where the American revolution stemmed from. I thought that was so cool. Man, you just broke that down. Hardcore, man. I mean, you might have an unhealthy fascination with pirates right now. I do. Now. I really do. <laughs> I do. I really do. Like, I, I get into these absolute, just uh, laser-focused obsessions. And what I like to do is just go down the rabbit hole on one thing. And my like the way that I do it, I don't know if it's unique or not, but it helps me learn stuff really, really, really quickly, is in coalition with listening to audiobooks, like nonfiction audiobooks based in historical fact, I'll watch a fiction, like a fictionalized version of that particular topic. So to, for an example, in Pirates, I've been watching Black Sails. And Black Sails actually had some consultants who wrote some of the books that I'm reading. So there's a lot of mm. these precepts woven throughout Black Sails. And then I use that Right, what I have the mental image of, like that visual kind of remembrance of, and I match that against what I listen to afterward in the audiobooks. So it's like a kind of like a twofold process where I'm using what I know visually and what I really easily remember because that's kind of how my brain works, and then cross referencing it afterwards. So I can be like when I'm watching it, like, oh, you know, Captain Flint wasn't actually a real person, right? Or like typical stuff like right. that. Um, or like, oh, it actually didn't work wow. that way. It's better for me to, it's just how I learn. That's pretty crazy. I mean, that your mastery of that is incredible. I mean, I'm like listening. I'm like, there's a lot of detail to this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I have, when I, uh, I don't even, I couldn't even tell you how many like, dozens of hours, if not more of audiobooks and all four seasons of Black Sails in the past three months wow. or so. So, you know, that's what I do in my free time. Well, listen, you need to know a lot about a lot of things being in the news. And I think it's, it's, it's an interesting commentary on kind of maybe the back end knowledge of the formation of the United States and kind of the whispers of, of democracy. Um, really interesting stuff, man. But you know, man, it's always a pleasure speaking with you, Peter. You know, we do this every two months. I always look forward to it. And one thing's for sure, the news will be different then too. <laughs> one thing I was thinking the other day was uh, I saw a Kobe tribute video, not to bring up that old wound mm. again, but that was this this year. It was this year. Crazy. We're, we're in a time warp, man. We're in a time warp, and next time we do this, we will actually have a new president. It seems like at this point. So like, I mean, it's all like, there's all these events that are happening in between every time we talk. It's like nuts how many things are happening. Hopefully more vaccination type of stuff coming through. I mean, there'll be a lot of stuff to talk about. Oh, dude, our next one's going to be a, our next one's going to be an interesting one indeed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
It, very interesting so. indeed. As you know, will the future of the country, technology, biz, everything? You know, it's just yeah. that's that stuff gets me uh, gets me jazzed uh, if it's not immediately yeah. clear. For sure, man. Well, listen, thank you so much. Always good to chat with you, Peter. Hey, thank you for having me on, man. Um, and if you guys want to check out the donut as well, uh, the donut.co, the donut.co, uh, don't do the donut.com. Um, we're kind of don't getting extorted. People want $30,000 for that domain. I'm uh, just it's crazy. We're, we're not, yeah, we're not quite there yet, but, uh, the donut.co sign up for our newsletter. It's a daily newsletter comes Monday through Friday, uh, breaks down all of the news, very digestible, very readable. We're getting better at that every single day. Um, sign up. Let me know what you think. Uh, I'm at the tail end of every email. So your reply to the emails comes directly to me. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram or any other social media. Uh, we use Instagram more than the others. Donut Daily News is the handle. So just at Donut, D-O-N-U-T, Daily News. Um, but again, uh, follow us, sign up. Let me know what you think. Always love hearing from you. And Darian, thanks for letting me, let me come on and you know talk about aliens and pirates and all the stuff I enjoy, I enjoy talking about. Well, we're really like 10 year old boys right now. So it's okay. <laughs> but why, you know, life's more fun when you're open to new opportunities and excited about the world around you. I totally agree, man. Well, until next time, man, I really appreciate it. Sounds good, man. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone.